job, Pastor Freddie. Thank you, sir. Good job, Pastor Freddie. I am not going back to uh, my series on the truth, despite the subject matter this morning. That series ended last week, and uh, we're going to stick to that story, okay? Thank you. (laughs) Whoever that was, thank you. (laughs) I appreciate it. It's just fascinating to me where God goes with his children. Have you ever had God pull a number on you? Yes? Yeah. Well, um, this morning we're going to be talking about something that, once again, kind of like last week's subject matter, I don't ever really hear anybody preach about this. Not that they don't. It's not that they haven't, it's that I haven't heard it, okay? There's a whole lot of preaching and teaching going on out there that I don't get to hear because I only have two sets of ears and there are countless preachers and teachers. So I just haven't had an opportunity to hear this, Mike. And if you have heard a message or messages, lesson or lessons about this, well, great. I'm so happy for you. But this morning, we're going to be teaching out of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is a strange subject to preach on. Um, I have heard people talk about this, and it's broad, broad um, applications, and I think that it is best to take our text verse this morning that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 is going to be our text. And I want to go there right now and read it. Um, I'm reading from the NIV, which is behind me. Uh, Whatever you're reading from, I'm sure you can make it through here if it's verbed a little bit different. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness. So the $64,000 question this morning that I want to present to you right off the top of my head is, um, have you ever used that scripture on somebody? Have you ever quoted that or some facsimile thereof, a quote on somebody? If you haven't, I'm quite certain that you have likely heard someone else field that particular scripture reference, and it is usually used in the context that some young person is contemplating or involved in dating someone who they ought not to be dating. Or they have announced the fact that they're engaged to someone who is not of the faith. That is classically, typically, almost stereotypically, the application that we use here for 2 Corinthians 6 and 14. But would it surprise you to know that both the context of verse 14, as well as the original language being used by the Apostle Paul, suggests, which is kind of a weak word, how about let's say, standing up on top of the tallest building in the neighborhood and screaming at the top of his lungs, that he is not talking about dating, engagement, or marriage here. Would it surprise you to know that? Because guess what? He's not. I just had a mind blown over here at the guitar the guitar area. Just, he's not. As a matter of fact, if you take the context in literal interpretation, which incidentally, in this case, you can... And then you take the language in which it is written. 
you'll find out that Paul is not talking to people about not dating unbelievers or not marrying unbelievers at all. In fact, what he's actually writing about here is how believers should put a precedent on avoiding idolatry. Please keep in mind, once you settle down with all of those amens, please keep in mind that this is one of the two letters to the church at Corinth to suggest that the city of Corinth had issues is an understatement. Quite possibly the understatement of the century. Okay? One of those issues in the city of Corinth is idolatry. Because, you know, in Corinth, idolatry is kind of a thing. It is what they do. They worship a veritable plethora of gods in Corinth. The problem in the context here is that the church is allowing the practice of idolatry into their lives and subsequently into the church. So let's look at our text verse again, but let's keep reading. Go right on through to the end of the chapter in verse 18. Let's see if we can't pick this up. Verse 14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Verse 10, What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? First clue right there that we're talking about idolatry. Belial is anything but a member of the triune Godhead. And the worship thereof was prevalent and prolific. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Now, the very next sentence, the apostle is going to clarify what the temple of God is. But with a show of hands, how many here know what the temple of God is? Okay, we have a massive amount of the body of Christ this morning who does not know. Deeply disconcerting. Who here knows what the temple of God is? Come on now. Okay, we're doing better. The mention of idols, again, reinforces the the issue of idolatry. For we, continuing on, are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 17, Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, Where is the unclean thing? How many of you have spent any time at all trying to figure out what that means, the unclean thing? The unclean thing is anything offered to idols. Okay? Let's just clarify that up right now. So we're still talking about the same thing. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. How many Christians need Jesus to receive them after they've already been received in Christ? He says, come out from them. Don't touch the unclean things, and I'll receive you. But what we have here is a conflict of interest where Corinthian church members are still mixing it up with the world. Last verse, verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this morning, I'm going to avoid listing all the scriptures that talk about... um, Uh, being unequally yoked, either directly or indirectly. As a matter of fact, in my research, uh, I was just surfing the web, and I found one document, just one, that had over 33 scriptures attached to it that directly, uh, either directly or indirectly, dealt with the notion of being unequally yoked. It's not like we lack for evidence in this matter. But what we see here is that 
this particular scripture does not deal directly with what we have always thought it was meant to be. However, there's always a however. Despite that, that fact that this text is actually dealing with idolatry, that doesn't mean that the principle of avoiding being unequally yoked with unbelievers can't have a broader application. So maybe, just maybe, we're not so wrong after all. Because the statement the Apostle Paul made has been made. And it has been documented in the Holy Writ of God's Word. Therefore, although this context may be dealing with idolatry, the idea can have a broader application. That is the path in which we will follow today. This morning I'd like to speak to you on a subject I've simply and merely uh, entitled Unequally Yoked. Everybody here who's been here for very long at all knows I hate sermon titles. So I usually take the path of least resistance. And since we're talking about being unequally yoked, that's the name of the sermon today. Unequally Yoked. Now... Like I said, instead of listing all these things, just going through a list of of scriptures that you could find in a concordance, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to take our New Testament text and I'm going to jump way, 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 way back in time and follow what I think is a trail that's going to make maybe possibly a more impactful point this morning. First, last week... In just passing, I mentioned a requirement made by God that he verbalized and voiced in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 7. So this morning, what I want you to do is reach way back in your Old Testament. And I want you to go to the book of Deuteronomy and turn to chapter 7. If you don't know where Deuteronomy is and you have a Bible like mine, it's page 207. Look at me when you arrive. Some of you are thinking, I'm already there because I'm looking at the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, translated, and I've been over this a lot of times in your hearing, but translated, we know that the word Deuteronomy means second law. Second law. Now, that doesn't mean that God gave another set of laws in addition to what he gave Moses and so on. That's not what that means. What it means is, This is going to be, in Deuteronomy, the refresher course that Moses gives forth to the people of Israel just and immediately prior to their entering into the promise of God. This is one of those things where you get the team together and you you pump them up and tell them, this is what God said, so when we cross over the Jordan River off of the east bank, and divide Canaan, slap in half, this is how we're supposed to act, because we're different than everybody else. Ready? One, two, three, let's go. Who here is even remotely awake? Okay, we've got three that are remotely awake. I'm going to look this way then. So second law, this is the second time they're giving it prior to going into Canaan, the promised land. Now, we have to remember a couple of things here. Before we get into Deuteronomy 7, and I know I've kind of got to keep moving here because it's going to get late fast. We have to understand something, that the events that occur in the Old Testament are historically factual. That's the first thing you need to remember. The stories that we read about actually occurred. The people involved in them actually lived. This stuff played out. With respect to the transition that 
Moses and Israel is about to make, um, these events coming from Egypt, the place of bondage and slavery, coming out of there because God was freeing them from bondage, and how they marched out of the city and came headlong into an actual real body of water called the Red Sea. All of this actually happened. And while they're at the banks of the Red Sea, their captors in Egypt actually came after them with a vengeance. This is all historically, or historical fact. Upon or just immediately before arriving, God actually parted the Red Sea and allowed His children, Israel, to walk through it. And upon reaching the far shore, He then miraculously and powerfully brought the entire Red Sea back down upon their pursuers destroying the pursuers. Through a chain of unfortunate events, they then made a huge error in judgment and spent 40 years wandering the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. At the end of that 40 years, they made their way north by northeast through the Negev, and landed on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, which is another literal physical body of water. There today. You can wade around in it if you want. And that's where we find ourselves, just prior to entering into Canaan. And at the time designated by God, they promptly crossed the Jordan, divided Canaan in half, and made sorties both north and south gaining the entire land. That actually happened. Real people, real events, real places. So that's historical fact. But the fact of the matter is, is all those things are also spiritual fact. Every last one of us in here have had our own taskmaster in Egypt who had us in chains and slavery. Every last one of us have at some point in time been wooed by the Spirit of God and drawn out of Egypt by His powerful hand. Every last one of us have at one point or another found ourselves on the west bank of the Red Sea, looking forward into an uncertain future, and the only obstacle between us was the enemy behind us, And the blood of Jesus in front of us. And since in and of ourselves we could not pass through the Red Sea of Jesus' blood. In His power and omnipotence provided a way and He parted that Red Sea. That sea of blood sacrificed by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Parted the sea escorted us through, and then collapsed that self-same sea on the pursuing enemy behind us. He did that in every one of our lives that call ourselves children of the Almighty God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He did that. Now, this is where it gets a little dicey. This is where it gets a little sketchy. Because some of us make a real bonehead stunt of our belief system. We've already passed through. We've been covered by the blood. But you know what? Some of us do something and we falter in our steps. And we end up wandering around a wilderness of desert for whatever our equivalent of 40 years is. Some of us shoot from the Red Sea to the Eastern Bank. Some of us don't make it that quick. But in either way, in either case, God has never left us nor forsaken us. And He, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, will get you to 
the Eastern Bank. And then when we arrive on Jordan's East Bank, we look across and everything in front of us is God's promise to us. The only thing left to do after crossing the Jordan River is go into our promise and destroy everything that's alive. Kill it all. Let God sort it out. The promise of God is right here. Covered by the blood. This is his temple, and his temple is in his promise. Yes? But how many of you know that when you got saved, you didn't always act so godly? How many of you know that if you've been saved quite a long time, sometimes you just don't act that godly? You know what that is? Those are Canaanites. And God said, kill them all. Don't make treaties. Don't have mercy. Kill them all. Why? Because those Canaanites in our lives are not Jesus Christ. They're us. They're our flesh. They're what the devil likes to promote. And he says, you're going to die to that. So all the Canaanites get to die. So not only is it historical fact with real people, places, and events, it's also spiritual fact because it happened to every last one of us who professed Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's move forward. Let's read, shall we? Let's read. We're going to go from verses 1 through 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. How many of you have ever experienced those things in your life? They seem when the fight starts and you're trying to get rid of it out of your life to let Jesus come in and rule and reign, that those things are bigger and stronger than you. How do you like the fact that the list contains seven of them? What a drag. And when the Lord, verse 2, your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. You thought I was just being dramatic. No. Do not intermarry with them. What? Are we actually on the relationship thing now? Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Are you listening to that? He boldly proclaims, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. This text establishes when entering the promise of God that every ungodly thing must be destroyed and no treaty is to be made with anything living there and you are to show no mercy to anything living there. Why? Because God wants to spring clean. God just wants to kind of clean that little piece of real estate of his up, and he's going to use the children of God to do it. No, it's not. It's because he says of his children, and if you're a young person who's 
looking at someone, wanting to date them. If you're a young adult looking at wanting to get married and there is somebody out there that you are just fawning over. If you are an older person who's single looking to get married. If you are someone who just is connecting and making associations in your life. And if you're a business person who's looking to make agreements and connections with other business people, understand that the Lord says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, a treasured possession. In other words... Hold on to your seats. You are unique in all the world. You are a chosen people, a holy nation, peculiar. You are not like those that are unbelievers. You are utterly unique. And if He is really cute or she is so hot or you are looking at establishing a relationship for the rest of your life by putting a ring on a finger and changing your last name or changing some young lady's last name or if you're just lonely and you need to establish some associations. Getting on, getting on social media and friending only God knows who because you sure don't. I have 2.5 million friends. A whole quarter of them are Satanists, but that's okay. I like my numbers. God only knows that if it's social media, but you don't know who you're friending, you're not supposed to be friends with the world. The world, well, thank you. The world is in direct conflict with what you believe. And remember what he said. Don't take their daughters to be wives to your husbands. Don't give your daughters to them to be wives for their sons because they, what was the verbiage? Will. They will. Why? Young people? Old people? People, people. You dive off into darkness. It will swallow you. Diving willingly off into darkness is categorically different than darkness trying to attack you. It is categorically different. Because what you have done by diving off into darkness for your relationships, for your associations, for your business decisions, is you have willingly, willfully, eyes wide open, chosen another God over Jehovah. You have willfully, attentively decided that this thing is better for me than what God has for me because, frankly, God's just not fast enough. I could be making money hand over fist if I get in bed with this business partner. Oh, sure. They've been accused of everything from, I don't know, uh, sexual impropriety with, with, with employees to embezzlement, but none of it's ever been proven. And this is just going to benefit me. That is a wanton, willful disobedience to God's Word. Now remember, 2 Corinthians is talking about idolatry. What's more idolatrous than looking at what will benefit you more than what God is doing in His own time and choosing to go into darkness. That is idolatry. 
You are worshiping whatever is before you to worship instead of the God, almighty creator and savior, Lord. We need to beware. Yes? I'll get there. I think we've established maybe the baseline for entering into the to the promise of God. This is where you and I exist. God's promise. Whether it looks like it or feels like it right now or not is irrelevant. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you are actively pursuing and serving Him, your circumstances may stink like the hundred or more dead skunks on the road now that it's springtime that have been hit by cars and smelling up all of northern Navarro County. That may be what your circumstances look like. But God is still with you. God is still in this with you. He has never left. Now, let's look at an example. Now that we've covered this in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, let's look at an example where Israel... Well, let's see. Israel kind of dropped the ball. Everybody knows this story, so this is nothing new to you. But they've dropped the ball in fulfilling the requirements of Deuteronomy 7. As a matter of fact, this is shortly after. They're in the promise of God already. Deuteronomy is a book that's outside of the promise of God, but they've entered the promise of God. Let's see where they botch things up, shall we? And let's see if we can't relate to this. And like I said... We all know this. Chapter 9 of the book of Joshua, we're going to start at the first verse. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Great Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, They came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. Okay, so they've gotten word what's been going on. And all they can think of is, if I stand here by myself, they're going to steamroll over me too. So let's make a team and let's go after these guys. That's basically the the statement. However, verse 3, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put put, uh, worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply uh, was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Let's jump over to verses 14 and 15. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Everybody say with me together, oops, yeah. I want you to notice that the Gibeonites, they're not a people that were listed um, in the lists of people that were to be destroyed in either Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 1 or Joshua 9 and 1. They don't appear there. So what might seem to be wrong with this treaty? What seems to be the problem here? If they're not listed as, as those nations, why couldn't Israel do this and it be all hunky-dory? Well, number one, it's because Deuteronomy 7.1 said kill it all. But the problem here is a little more acute. You see, the Gibeonites are actually family. They are related to the Amorites. And we know historically all of the problems that the Amorites gave Israel. Making a treaty with them 
was a very, very serious and enduring problem. Because what they did, what Israel did, what Joshua and the elders of Israel did, is they established a peace treaty on oath which would last, essentially, forever. And God would hold them to it. That's a big problem when before you even get into the promise of God, God says destroy all of them. All of them. We have a problem. These are a people now in treaty with Israel for basically ever, all because of a ruse that they put on, and they should be dead in their entirety. The keys to this enormous error on the part of Israel are twofold. It's just two little problems, two little things. Let's see if these don't sound familiar. Number one, they didn't pray. They just didn't seek God about their decision. And number two, they trusted their eyes instead of God. How many times have we made mistakes in our lives and breached what God wanted for us because we didn't pray and what looked what we were looking at looked so good that we couldn't resist it. How many times? That's what they did. If we're talking about relationships, how many times have we seen that person and ooh la la in the words of the minion, ooh la la. And we just can't resist what we're seeing because either the muscles are flexing or the eyelashes are batting. And we cannot resist what we're seeing. And we don't even bring God into it because we didn't pray. And the funny thing, the funny thing is that there are even times where the muscle flexing or eyelash batting is actually one of his children, but not the will for you. How many times have we decided to make a decision for our business or our money ventures and we never one time sought God about it because we know enough about business and about money to make that decision on our own? We know. You know what's funny is you may know a lot about money. You may know a lot about business, but you don't know nothing about the future that God walks like a hallway back and forth between the bedroom and the bathroom. Only He walks the corridors of time. You don't. As a matter of fact, the Bible describes God as the God who knows the end from the beginning. That's reverse of chronological order. Who wants to trust your life to yourself when you don't know the next millisecond and He has already walked your life from the end to the beginning and strides it like no one? But we do that because we do two mis- we, we make two mistakes. Number one, we trust our own judgment. I mean, we trust our own eyes. And we don't pray about the things that are necessary. From this point, this point, the treaties made, they are now bound. They are now unequally yoked together with something that ought not to be. Right? And now you don't hear anything about Gibeah much. They just kind of fall off the face of the earth, biblically. It's, you know, until you get to Second Samuel chapter 21. I'm going to try to get through this quickly. Second Samuel chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump down to verse 9. Listen carefully. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Wow, talk about a re-entrance of Gibeah into the word of God. The king summoned, in verse 2, the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Because remember, they're still in the land. 
They're the one group that's still there legally. So he just calls them. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. I think we covered that. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. So this was not, oh, they killed a couple because there was a ruckus. No, Saul, wanting to please Israel and Judah, went out on a wholesale slaughter, genocide, in an attempt to annihilate the Gibeonites, the one group of people in Canaan that had a legal treaty with Israel to not be harmed. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. Then, or they answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the, Lord, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. Let's jump to verse 9. finding there we go he handed them over to the gibeonites who killed and exposed them on the hill before the lord all seven of them fell together they were put to death during the first days of the harvest just as the barley harvest was beginning from the time of the treaty that joshua made with gibeah until these verses in 2 Samuel chapter 21. I want you to listen to this. The time span was 430 years. 430 years, over four centuries, had passed before the commands of God were shown as to why you don't become unequally yoked with unbelievers. Whether because the old treaty that Joshua had made had been forgotten or if it had been simply ignored by Saul, I don't know. But the reasons for not being unequally yoked with unbelievers became painfully obvious. Nearly four and a half centuries had passed, and yet God's Word manifested itself. When believers become unequally yoked with unbelievers, death is not far behind. It wasn't, in, it wasn't in 2 Samuel 21, and it isn't today. You said, Michael, how in heaven's name are you stringing all these scriptures together and trying to apply them to me because that guy or that gal over there is so cute? Why does that apply to me at all? It applies to you because whether it's on a national level like the people of Israel or in your dating life, when you allow the darkness of the, un, of the unregenerate into your life, it does affect you. And when God said in Deuteronomy 7, don't give your kids up and don't take their kids in because it will essentially kill them, he meant that. He meant that. And here we have those facts established in the annals of God's Word, Deuteronomy 7. And in Joshua, we see that because someone made the mistake of not putting God first in their life and seeking Him, but rather assessing their circumstances. Man, she's cute. Good night, he's so hot. That investment is just too good. 
you're right. It is too good. Because someone didn't seek God, but decided to decide that what they saw was better and more important and more relevant to their lives than what God's Word and timing said. A mistake was made. And Israel, the people of God, become unequally yoked to unbelievers. And nearly four and a half centuries later, it manifests itself. David saying, God, what in the world is up with this famine? Man, it's a drought. Things are, this is not good. We're your people. What is going on? And God kind of leans over on one arm on the throne and said, you know, your predecessor, the guy that tried to kill you. Yeah, he was a jerk. Anyway, he went out and didn't just kill a Gibeonite or two. He set up. He set about trying to annihilate the entire people. And I'm not going to let a drop of rain hit the ground, and you're not going to grow a single crop until that is dealt with. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the facts of obeying God's Word. That's it. Obey His Word. Hear it. Weigh it and know that it in its application will bring you through the best life. And in its denial, you will walk out from under the covering of the house of God and you will pay the price. Yoking yourself to unbelievers, whether it be dating, marriage, associations, or business partnerships, is going to result in the death of morals, in the death of virtues, in the death of ethics, and even one's Christianity, if one is not careful. You will do things you would not have done. You will go places you would not have gone. And you will decide things you would not have decided. It's happened far many times, too many times, for your time, for my time, to be the exception. Let's jump back to Deuteronomy 7 as I close. This is why the Lord puts this out there. You say to yourself, man, it's just a boyfriend. We're just going to go date. It's just a girlfriend. We're just going to go date. It's not like we're going to get married or anything. Do you realize this is a truth? This is a truism that all of you young people or those of you who are unmarried need to write down right now. You marry who you date. You marry who you date. Unless, of course, you just happen to be one of those mail-order brides. In which case, you marry who orders you. Typically by credit card. It's an electronic uh, transaction. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. Why is God so intense about this why is god so strict about this here's why verse 7 deuteronomy 7 the lord listen to this i'm going to do my best to get through this the lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. 
who kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a uh, forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of pharaoh king of egypt know therefore that the lord your god is god he is faithful god keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations and those who love him and keep his commands in closing brothers and sisters we cannot embrace the various doctrines and teachings of the bible soteriology the doctrine of the blood pneumatology the doctrine of the holy spirit the trinity the baptism in the holy spirit sanctification the gifts and the fruit of the spirit creation the resurrection and the second coming and the list can go on and on and on we cannot embrace these various doctrines and teachings of the bible claiming to love god with all of our heart all of our mind all of our soul all of our body only to take the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 15. Where he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We can't just take that while embracing the rest and just cast them aside, cast his words aside when they become inconvenient saying I will date I will marry I will associate with or I will go into business with whomever I choose because it is beneficial to me for one reason or for another right here and right now choose you Joshua said this day whom you will serve Because if you choose to embrace all that is laid before you in God's Word and in one hormone or greed-soaked decision, say, God, I'm digging all that stuff. But this one, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing my own thing here. You will pay the price. The Bible bears witness to that. The Bible has established, and we could go on for another week in this, but we're not going to. The Bible has established how to approach the unequally yoked question. And the question is, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because he loves you. And he says to us, I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord. He's not trying to decide the plans. He's not getting a focus group to try to make sure that maybe these plans work well. He's not polling the angelic host. What do you think about this plan? Do you guys have a plan? He said, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. plans for hope and a future. Stand with me this morning. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, young people and old, stay the course. Stay the course with God. His word is in place, not to unreasonably rule over you. But his entire canon of Bible can be summed up. His reasoning, his motives can be summed up in these words and these words alone. If you had nothing else, 
his reasons for putting boundaries and restrictions opposing the life and the liberty that he gives you can be summed up in these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. My God and my King, how He loves us. So don't be unequally yoked. Look at your circumstances, where you stand. Are you doing something? Are you in a relationship? Are you looking to marry? Are you looking to get together with business partners that are not in the light of God? to govern their own thoughts, to govern their own motives in business. Are you moving that way? Stop. Take a breath. And if it costs you, if it costs you a broken heart or some cash, if it costs you Take the hit and stay in the light. Take the hit and stay in the Word of God within the parameters, the framework, the boundaries of God's Word for you because His Word is there because He loves you. The Word made fresh, flesh came and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ. Father, we worship you. We glorify your name in all the earth. Do we have prayer requests? Diana, come on down. Prayer team, come forward. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. We glorify you. We thank you. Lord, we thank you for all these requests. We ask right now in Jesus' name that you would undertake in these things, that you would minister. Father, that you would bless. But Lord, right now, I'm going to put an invitation out here. Listen to me, family. If you're a person who is in one of these circumstances, if you're one of these people, you're some young gal, some young lady, and man, someone, some guy has shown you some attention. And man, he's cute and he's nice and he's sweet. He doesn't smell. And you're really considering asking mom and dad if it's okay to date this guy but he doesn't know Jesus if you're a young lady or if you're a young man and some young gal is smiling at you and making it very plain that if you ask her out she will go and she doesn't know Jesus Listen to me. Don't be fooled by the lie that you're going to get with them and you're going to change them. You know why that's a lie? Because Deuteronomy 7 tells us different. They will change you. If you're someone who's just assembling numbers... hanging out with the wrong crowd you're, 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 you are unequally yoked in your associations or if you're a person who's a business owner or you want to be a business owner and man there's an opportunity knocking on my door and I'm telling you if I step away from this I'm a fool but the opportunity being governed by people who do not know Jesus Christ whose lives are not governed by Jesus Christ you'll be a fool if you take that job if you take that investment if you take that business deal you'll be a fool because you're going to be living a life with people 
is having say over and with you over money that they are not governed by the same principles that you are governed by. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If that's you, I want to give an invitation right now to come and find God in your circumstances. I'm going to be frank with you. I'm not a man of faith and power right now. I don't expect this altar to be flooded. I'm going to be honest. I don't. Because ain't nobody going to want to admit that stuff. But you admitted you were a sinner one time. You admitted you were you admitted the fact that you were lost without God one time. That you were in the dark and that you were going to hell. And that you were devil's play toy. You admitted that one time. I'm asking you to admit something else. Come on. If that's you, come on. We're going to pray. 